This week on the show, we look at FreeBSD Foundation's proposals and what you need to submit one, Unix on the path to BSD, Fujitsu ending its mainframe and Unix services, installing Burp Suite on FreeBSD using Linux Relator and tutorial, new OpenBSD website is out and we read a little bit from it and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 447, Path to BSD, recorded on the 9th of March, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for online backups for truly paranoids. And if you'd like to support this show, check out our Patreon page on patreon.com slash bsdnow for maybe removing ads or putting something in our tip jar, various ways to give us something back. Hi, we are your hosts, Benedict Reuschling. I'm Tom Jones. Yes, uh, we are back with a fresh BSD episode filled with BSD to the brim, I would say. Starting with headlines this week from the FreeBSD Foundation about project proposals and the overview about them. So we thought, okay, since I'm the vice president of the FreeBSD Foundation's board, I might as well read this part and I'm happy to. Uh, so introduction for the people who have never heard about the FreeBSD foundation and i can't imagine listeners to this podcast who are among them but maybe we have new folks what, what is the freebsd foundation <laughs> yeah. oh if they don't know okay yeah well okay so the freebsd foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the freebsd project the foundation gratefully accepts donations from individuals and businesses using them to fund projects that further development of the freebsd operating system in addition the foundation can represent the freebsd project in executing contracts license agreements and other legal arrangements that require a recognized legal entity the FreeBSD Foundation is entirely supported by donations, and this includes many of you folks listening. Thank you for that. Summary. The FreeBSD Foundation is soliciting the submission of proposals for work relating to any of the major subsystems or infrastructure within the FreeBSD operating system. The proposals will be evaluated based on desirability, technical merit, and cost effectiveness. There's a comma missing there, but that's me. Um, <laughs> guidelines. Proposals must include the following. So if you want to submit something, definitely make sure that these are included. A detailed description of what is being proposed, how it will benefit the FreeBSD project and why the work is needed. Then second, a timeline and costing for the project so that we have a rough estimate, you know, how long this would go and uh, how expensive this is going to be. And third, one or more people that will act as technical reviewers for the work, like we could program all day something, but if no one reviews these things or gives the check mark, yes, this is complete, then it's difficult to make sure this is done. Milestones, completion, and final payments. So the proposals must include milestones for which partial payments can be made. Uh, in addition to the milestones, a complete target or a completion target date must be proposed when the completed project has been placed into the FreeBSD source repository. A proposal will be rejected if a target completion date is not submitted, so make sure that you provide one. Payments will only be made when milestones are reached and that work has been approved and accepted by the technical monitors and all proposals must be in US dollars. So uh, convert. Uh, yeah, proposals are open to all developers, including non-FreeBSD committers, but developers without access to commit to the source tree must provide details about how the completion guidelines will be achieved, like who's committing that stuff or doing the final review. Uh, there's a bit of help about how to propose and suppose 
uh, or submit these things. The FreeBSD Foundation allocates a certain amount of funding to help fund projects that will improve the FreeBSD operating system. Uh, we have invited developers to submit proposals for projects they would like us to fund. And this is, a, by the way, not the first time we're doing this. Uh, we did this in previous years and we want to do this again. So definitely don't miss the deadline. The objective of the proposal is to identify what is to be done, explain why this needs to be done and convince us that you are qualified to do this project. You have someone who can provide technical oversight and you have the resources needed to complete the project within the stated time and cost constraints. So that needs to be considered. Uh, send your proposals uh, as an email to proposals at freebsdfoundation.org and include all the information that uh, we just mentioned, as well as contact information like project costs, reviewer compensation, and how to pick a reviewer. Okay, uh, there's more in the article, but definitely check out the rest of it uh, and don't uh, yeah, hesitate to submit something. Good proposals and bad proposals, we sort them out, right? But if you don't get proposals, right, this is not going anywhere. And we definitely want to support work to improve and enhance FreeBSD this way. And so that's why we're doing these things. I mean, I, I'm definitely aware that I'm in, in a bubble here with what I'm exposed to, but the FreeBSD Foundation seems to be the most um open with its calls to provide funding that i'm aware of yeah, I'm, and not, so, I'm not really aware of other open source projects which are pushing this hard to get people to like come and do projects for them mm -hmm. and i think um, there's various areas where a lot of people are always shouting and screaming hey there could be more work done in this area or why is no one working on x or y and so this is a way to actually propose a solution and a time frame and how much it would cost so if you always wanted if you are a developer and always wanted to do this thing and don't have time because your day job demands it then we could arrange something to say okay take some time off we'll pay you to implement this feature and so this way you can focus on that completely and get paid for it and then get back to your day job once it's done this, this doesn't solve the uh the continual problem in open source which is like ongoing maintenance but it is offers too, yeah. of, like it's offers of money to allow you to do major uh, feature development like there's not money here like to just keep the project going for a couple of years but there is an offer to add support for better arm hypervisors or like something on top of freebsd and i know it's specific to freebsd but i really like this open nature it's really nice to see uh funds being allocated this way i'm sure the netbsd foundation does this too and i I know the OpenBSD Foundation offers like um, travel grants or accommodation for hackathons, yeah. and so they try and focus effort. Mm -hmm. uh, but oh, yeah. the of other foundations are similarly doing this kind of support for the projects. Yeah, uh, like there's and lots yeah. of projects have grants um, for like conference attendance or for increasing increasing in inclusivity, which FreeBSD also have. But I'm just not as aware of any projects being like we'll do contract development. Like we, we need features. Tell us what you want to add and we'll help you, enable you to do it. So it's really nice. Yeah, and a lot of people are looking forward to these things because we certainly know what, what needs to be done. And there's a lot of proposals being made, but none of them have like a time frame or this person could do that and then it needs this amount of time. And that is the proposal we want to look for. Uh, okay, so from current day funding problems to the deep past, deep past of uh, the BSD, we have an article from Clara Systems, Unix on the path to BSD. 
in a previous article, we took a look at the steps that led up to the creation of Unix, um, which we've read very recently. Uh, today, we will continue to look at the evolution of Unix and the events that led to the creation of BSD. The Unix Room. When Ken Thompson, Dennis Ritchie, and their team started their operating system project, they were assigned an office on the sixth floor of the building two at Bell Labs. The room contained their hard-won PDP-11, along with several Model 33 and Model 37 teletypes. Eventually, the teletypes were replaced with monitor terminals, and the team moved on to a better room one floor down. The room was very busy, no matter where it was, when it was, I think no matter when it was, uh, inside people were either coding or socializing. Many people spent more time in the Unix room than they did in their own office. Ken Thompson was a prime example. For a short room, for a short time, the room had a strange feature, a, can, a 10 kilo chocolate bar. According to Brian Kerningham, they put a 10 kilo chocolate bar in the middle of the table and of course, it wasn't long before you had little chocolate fragments all over the place. It was just an unbelievable <laughs> mess, but it was good chocolate. One can imagine that this was a precursor to the many par- perks that technology companies offer today. Now, as a complete digression, and this is not in the Clower article, uh, I, I mentored a Google Summer of Code. Um, and to thank the mentors, Google host a mentor summit. And the one I went to was hosted in Munich. Um, and it was it was really nice. What they do for the Google Summer Code Mentor Summit is they bring mentors from all the projects together and they encouraged everyone to bring chocolate and they had a chocolate room and the chocolate room was full of chocolate that people had brought from everywhere. And then throughout the hotel, they put brown chocolate footprints on the ground. And if you followed them, you got to the chocolate room where there was basically unlimited <laughs> chocolate. And I, I just like every house needs a chocolate room. It was, oh, it was so yeah, great. Well. Definitely heaven for me. I, I promised I'd never tell anyone about this so that I could always go to the mentor summit, but G- mentoring GSOC's hard. And maybe that's the incentive you need to mentor a Google Summer of Code in FreeBSD or elsewhere. Yeah, just for the, the chocolate. chocolate room. But what happens if everyone leaves? Do they have to leave? Did you, like, are you exchanging the chocolate there? Or I, I think at the end of the conference, there? people left with chocolate. But I mean, it was very full at the beginning, but some people had tactical yeah, approaches to chocolate. Right. And so they topped it up. Um, it's such a nice perk. Like you're just like tired and like the mid middle of the afternoon. You're like, I'm going to go to a chocolate room and there's some different chocolate there. Oh yeah. Eat some chocolate. And you're like, yep. That gives you some boost. Well worth it. <laughs> uh, sorry. Anyway, back, back to the podcast. Uh, the first editions, unlike most software, Unix did not have a scheduled, scheduled releases and version numbers. This was due to the fact that it was evolving very rapidly. Instead, the developers released a new version of the programmer's manual periodically. The first edition of Unix was released on the 3rd of November 1971. This version contained a Fortran compiler and versions of many low-level system utilities still used today, including CAT, FIND, LS, and many more. It also had a B compiler, a basic interpreter, device files, and functions for managing punch tape, deck tape, and RK05 disks. One of the things that made the first edition of Unix stand out was the inclusion of a hierarchical file system, commonplace as the nested folder metaphor is today, the ability to organize files into multiple levels containing directories or folders was novel at the time. For the time, Unix provided a remarkably powerful environment for software development and did so in a relatively small space. It was approximately 4,200 lines of code long and took up 16 kilobytes of memory. In In early Unix history and evolution, Dennis Ritchie says, Every program for the original PDP-7 Unix system was written in assembly language, and bare assembly language it was. For example, there were no macros. When the team acquired its newer PDP-11, 
Unix had to be rewritten, still on assembly, for the more powerful machine. Although handwriting so much code in machine-specific assembly was an incredible amount of work, it gave Unix maximum direct access to the hardware and the increased performance that came with it. The second edition was released several months later on June 12, 1972. According to the preface to the second edition, the, new, the number of Unix installations has grown to 10, with more expected. This new release contained uh, many new commands such as echo, exit, man, stty, and the first C compiler. The third edition followed several months later in February 1973. This version added a C debugger, pipes, crypt, kill, password, PS, size, speak, split, unique, and yak to the system. By this time, Unix had expanded to 16 machines. Pipes were the most important part of the release. The addition of pipes had been advocated by um, Douglas McElroy for a long time, but up to this point, they had gained little support. Brian Kerningham said that pipes were a nice idea in theory, but it's so much harder to figure out how to do that in practice. However, once a new notation was introduced, pipes were added to the system and greatly extended its functionality. The rise of C, Unix needed a high-level programming language to be considered a serious system. Writing new assembly for each kind of computer Unix was going to run on wasn't going to be possible. Thompson decided that he would write a Fortran compiler. After a week, he shifted focus and he started working on a new programming language named B, which is influenced by the BCPL language. B was designed to be simple and portable, but the fact that it was an interpreted language meant that it was doomed to be slow. There had been talk about rewriting Unix in B, but that was dropped. There was also an issue of porting B to the PDP-11. These problems led to the creation of the C language by Ritchie. Early C was basically an improved version of B. As Unix evolved, so did the C programming language. In 1973, Ritchie added structures to C, improved the compiler, and made several other changes to make it the language we know and love today. When the fourth version of Unix debuted in November 1973, the system had been rewritten in C, this was groundbreaking because it meant that Unix had become one of the earliest operating systems to be written in a high-level language, a fact that made subsequent porting to other hardware architectures possible. This edition also introduced the COM, dump, file, grep, nice, nohop, sleep, sync, tr, and wait commands. According to the manual, the number of installs was now above 20. That's a hyperlink I didn't click before. Um, it also marked the first time the outside world was exposed to Unix through a paper written by Thompson and Ritchie. The article was printed in communications of the ACM, and was published by the Association for Computing Machinery. The Unix train picks up steam. The ACM article piqued the interest of people outside Bell Labs. They wanted to try out this new operating system. However, AT&T could not sell Unix due to a consent degree with the federal government, but they could license it. Starting with the fifth edition released in June 1974, they did just that. The manual for this new edition noted that the number of Unix installations is now above 50, and many more are expected. The release also introduced call, I don't know the call command, uh, DD, diff, EQN, LPR, PWB, spell, and T. Is call the one, no. Yeah, call the ones that formats a column of text to 80 characters. So there's column and call. What's column do? Column I know, and call rarely used, if not at all. Okay, I'll, 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 okay. You read the man page, I'll read the article. Initially, okay. Unix was only licensed to educational institutions. Many future programmers and computer scientists encountered Unix in this way. That changed when the sixth edition was released in May 1975. From this point, point forward, Unix was licensed to commercial firms as well as schools. Schools were only charged $200 per license, but companies were charged $200,000 per license. The cost might seem prohibitive, but a few firms felt the improved productivity achieved with Unix was worth the fee. 
thing is worth noting as well that computers were like 50 grand at the time. So 100 grand, like they're expensive software for expensive things. Uh, two years after the release of the sixth edition, Unix was running at some 500 sites, including 125 universities in the United States and several other countries. Despite its popularity, Bell Labs would add a slide that said, no advertising, no support, no bug fixes, payment in advance, whenever they talked about Unix at conferences. Since they could not expect to receive support from the system's creators, many Unix users banded together uh, to aid each other by fixing bugs, writing new tools, and generally improving the system as they saw fit. 7th edition Unix, the father of BSD. The 7th edition of Unix was released in January 1979. This version greatly improved system reliability and introduced a new improved file system. It also included new tools including awk, sed, make, tar, uucp, the born shell, an improved C compiler, and a Fortran 77 compiler. According to the October 1983 magazine of Byte, according to the October 1983 issue of Byte magazine, many of the previous rough spots had disappeared. The maximum file size had grown to one gigabyte, that's astounding, and a standard I.O. library had been introduced. During the 75-76 academic year, Ken Thompson worked as a visiting professor at the University of California, Berkeley. While there, he introduced the students to Unix, and they worked together to create new tools for it. The Unix tools created by Berkeley students included the C-Shell, VI, the Berkeley Fast File System, SendMail, a Pascal compiler, and the virtual memory management on the new digital VAX architecture. These tools were packaged with Unix and released as the Berkeley software distribution. The first full version for the VAX was 3BSD, released in December 1979. From there, BSD would grow on its own and eventually overshadow its progenitor. That is a hard word to say. Mm. Even for you. What's call, what's call? What does call do, Benedict? Uh, so call, according to the man page, says the call utility is a filter reverse line feeds from input. So the call utility filters out reverse and half reverse line feeds so that the output is in the correct order with only forward and half forward line feeds and replaces white space characters with tabs where possible. Right? Um, I'm always working with half reverse stuff. <laughs> Not anymore. I don't know. I, I, but it was de definitely <laughs> useful, I'm fairly sure, back in the day. Um, why do we still have this <laughs> it's in there yeah if you need it it's not going to go oh away. i wish i hadn't given away my tally type so i could try it out <laughs> <laughs> I, I vaguely remember this being in the uh, tool chain of the freebsd docs uh tools but i it's just yeah blurring but, but, blurring but now, now now ngroff is gone we don't need it anymore excellent yeah uh, if, if there is a listener that can tell us what on earth call was used for, I would be ecstatic to find yeah, out. Yeah, educate us, right? If I really want to know. From that time, we're <laughs> always happy to learn new things. E equally, if you can find a really weird old Unix command that has no place in 2022, but was in like um, System 4 or earlier, that'd be great as well. Cause oh, yeah. Like yeah. utilities for dealing with radar displays, I'm sure, there, I'm sure there's one. Uh, it was probably applicable to one device, but it's just lying around in the source tree somewhere. Maybe the Lions book is a good place to go and look to like find weird tools. Oh yeah, I had six edition Unix, but like, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not getting too fancy here. 
<laughs> the news roundup has also something for us. Uh, a bit of a sad note here of sorts, but uh, it tells us that Fujitsu is ending its mainframe and Unix services. <gasps> well, be careful. Not there yet. Services will be phased out by 2030. That's 3-0. With support continuing for five years. So you have a bit of time until, you know, the Unix... Uh, end of days, um, 2038. <clears throat> la la la. Uh, so they say here in, on techradar.com that Fujitsu has quietly revealed its plans to shutter both its mainframe and Unix server system business by the end of this decade. In a notice posted by the Japanese IT giant's website, the company announced its plans to stop selling its mainframes and Unix server systems by 2030. Those support systems will continue for an additional five years. So migration is possible, I'm fairly sure. If you are on a mainframe still, then you have other problems. But definitely good to know these things. Fujitsu will stop manufacturing and selling its mainframe systems by 2030, as well as discontinuing its Unix server systems by the end of 2029, so a year before. Uh, as support services for both portfolios will extend for another five years, 2034 will mark the end of support for its Unix servers, while 2035 will be the end of its mainframes and no extension. That's me saying this. If you have enough money, for, well, then, yeah. Um, in its notice, Fujitsu argues that everything in society will be connected by digital touch points in the near future, which will require new, robust digital infrastructure. As such, business will need to reevaluate re the existing core systems and embrace fully digital hybrid IT model to remain competitive and sustainable. If that wasn't a marketing sentence, then I know don't know what is. Do you, do you know what Unix Fujitsu we're selling and i haven't had the pleasure no this is like this is like as far away from the sort of computing i do as like um power transformers and substations are to to the electrics in my house like i don't know like i'm sure it's there's really important things in important places but there are also things with probably very high price tags that are uh, so you scary you mean that in 2035 the lights go out without us noticing? And it don't, was... don't tell anyone. No, it's a secret. It's a oh, surprise. Yeah. Well, by then we'll have enough redundancy build up, hopefully. Yeah, redundant lights. <laughs> okay, so just to let you know, these are the plans that Fujitsu put up uh, for mainframe and Unix services not being supported in the number of years. Okay, next up we have a tutorial that's been posted to the FreeBSD forums. Uh, install Burp Suite on FreeBSD using Linux Ulator. This is by Flower Power 471. Hello everyone. I've been setting up a pen test workstation on FreeBSD. I've had a lot of struggle making my Burp Suite work, so I'm writing this tutorial to spare you all such pain. This tutorial has been tested on FreeBSD 13.0 release and Burp Suite v 2022 1.1, but it likely works on other versions too. Burp Suite is a framework for web PED testing. It has many tools such as a proxy to intercept HTTP requests and a brute forcing tool. It has become an industry standard in pen testing and you kind of have to know how to use it. It has some free and open source alternatives such as man in the middle proxy and wasp zap. Uh, before we start, Burp Suite is closed source software. If you are generally distrustful of proprietary software like I am, you may want to think before following this tutorial. We'll use CentOS 7 base for this tutorial. The instructions may vary if you use a SUSE base, for example. We'll be dealing with Burp Suite Community Edition as it is free. Um, 
So the first thing we do is they set up Linux compatibility. Um, you should make sure that the Linux and Linux 64 kernel modules are loaded. Uh, to do that, you run KLD stat in a terminal and it, it will give you some output. If Linux.ko and Linux 64.ko appear somewhere, then you're good. Otherwise run KLD load Linux and KLD load Linux 64. Then you must install the CentOS 7 base. To do that, run package install Linux base C7. Then you must install Linux Xorg libraries in order to run Linux GUI programs, which is package install Linux C7 Xorg libs, uh, which would be the center of a seven spin of these. Finally, make sure the service, uh, the Linux service has been enabled. For this, append Linux enable equals yes to etcrc.conf to start it at boot and then run service Linux start. Now you are all good to run Burp Suite. Uh, to install Burp Suite, you need to download Burp Suite Community Edition for Linux 64. Um, that gives you a bash script um, that you need to run. This should pop up a GUI installer. Uh, after the install, an error will be thrown. Ignore it. Now CD into your home directory. A Burp Suite Community directory should be there. It should contain Burp Suite Community jar file and a GRE folder. CD into it and run dot slash GRE bin Java and then a Java command, and voila, a GUI prompt will ask you to accept the license should appear, accept it, then congratulations, you've got Burp Suite running on FreeBSD. Everything should work except the embedded browser. You may also encounter some random crashes, but those don't happen very often. Uh, and extras, if you don't want to repeat the same weird command to run Burp Suite, you can make a shell script to run it. Well, that's pretty cool. Um, there's some more follow-up in the thread, so it's probably not everything in there. I thought this was a really great tutorial than that it told you commands to run and what to expect in the output. So I like this one uh, option here to the Java binary, dash dash illegal dash access equals permit. Like if you are programming this sort of software, then you're kind of like, hmm, how do I name my options? Why not name it illegal access equals permit? Yeah, of course. I mean, versus uh, deny. Uh, yeah, by all means, <laughs> give me access before denying it. Um, but it's uh, because of the pen testing. So this kind of stuck into my eye because, hey, I don't see that very often, illegal access. Um. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I like this though because um, like if I if I wrote this tutorial, I would say load the Linux kernel modules and just type like KLD load Linux, Linux 6.4. And I wouldn't think to say like, you might get an error for this if the modules are already loaded. Right. And, and this no is more like a tutorial style where if you are really new to FreeBSD, there are commands here that you might never have run because it's not common to load kernel modules. Most kernel modules are loaded for graphics and you do those through rc.conf in the KLD list. Um, so yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, it used to be more common to load modules this way, but now with uh, you know device match and all that, it's done automatically. And luckily we don't have to deal with these things, but occasionally we need to look at uh, KLD stat. Oh, cool. Um, in the thread, Someone says there used to be a port for Burp Suite, but it got depreciated. And Flower Power 417 that wrote this tutorial said they're going to look at the Portis handbook and see what they can do. Oh, excellent. That's That'd good. be really cool. Giving, uh, having maintainers uh, work on the software they have to use or use at work, I'm not sure if they have to, uh, it's good so that software doesn't get removed from the ports collection or from packages because no one's taking care of it and updating it. So it's good that people come back to these things and put that yeah, out for everyone. It's always good to have more people um, helping maintain bits of FreeBSD. You don't have to end up being a committer. You can still just uh, work on a couple of ports, um, yeah. keep the things that you enjoy alive. 
And that's um, already so helpful to many people. They can just yeah. do make install. If you look at some of the Linux distributions, what kind of things are necessary these days to just install the software? And where in FreeBSD, it's just package install or make install in the user ports directory. And I'm like, seriously, I need to download a key. Then I need to load this key into uh, some apt cache thingy and then run some checkup tools. And that's like five commands to just get the software installed. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm already done with this tutorial on the Linux side. I just want to run FreeBSD. <laughs> but yeah, and yeah, like the, like the next step as well from writing a tutorial like this is to write a shell script and say, here's the shell script that, that just runs Burp Suite for you. <laughs> and, and that's that's what I feel like a lot of the Linux packaging is like. Like mm. no effort, people have just... like they've automated as much as they can for other people, but it still ends up being really difficult to deal with. And then we get an error. You have no way of uh, yeah, finding out where it's yeah. just stuck. <laughs> so yeah, a great shout out to all the people uh, working in ports and making it uh, work for users like us who have no clue. Make, make, making our computers usable. Yeah, exactly. Like software <laughs> from uh, installing external software not that didn't come with the base operating system is just amazing on bsd okay um speaking of bsd we have news from openbsd the web sign we you remember our interview we did with one of the authors a while ago that was last year oh gee we should do another interview with someone else it was um, the last episode of last year so exactly yeah ago. exactly that was our finisher uh the openbsd website a new uh issue has been released number seven and we look at that here uh, the TLDR reads many syspatches releases or released for 6.9 and 7.0 includes directory etc login.conf.d is now a thing. Uh, OpenBSD 7.1 beta has been tagged and the website is late on schedule. Ah, well, it's coming out one way or the other. Okay, they list some recent current changes. Some of these we covered in last week's episode, like the LibreSSL update or the uh, OpenSSH updates. Login classes now include files from the directory dclogin.conf.d. So we can even click on these individual ones and get brought to the actual change on OpenBSD's uh, server. And uh, there is also interesting new packages they list, uh, one of which I didn't know. Uh, so let's start. T-Desktop, the official Telegram desktop client, is now available on OpenBSD. Excellent. Uh, block game to manage Minecraft accounts and versions, because why not? And Git sync to keep Git repositories up to date. Okay, good to know. Never heard about T Desktop. I'm only using the, the mobile client and it's already too much. Um, but it's cool. Uh, then there's the 7.0 stable updates they list since the last website issue. So they describe the sys patches you need to apply to get there or have for individual architectures and uh, list a couple of package updates that came with that, like uh, Postgres and some of the other versions, like Qt5, these uh, get regular updates. And you have them now in OpenBSD. So they also have an OpenBSD developer interview. Is that really? Oh, Vincent Finance. Is that, Finance is the last name? Wow, that's a cool name. <laughs> that, that's kind of like if you're, uh, I don't know, a contractor and you're like, hey, where are you working this week? I'm working in finance. It's like, yeah, okay, bad joke. Sorry. Um, so for this issue, Celine accepted to reply to his uh, to my questions for a short interview. So who's interviewing what? Vincent is interviewing Celine. Right. The Celine other way is the last person we interviewed. Exactly, right? 
So typically she's interviewing other people. Yeah. But now they switched roles. Okay. I, I think this is a great interview and people should go and read it because we, we've interviewed Celine two yep. months ago. So it's a good uh, compliment <laughs> to ours. Also and... go back and listen to our last episode. On <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like direct link to that. Uh, they also have shell tips, which I'm always interested in getting more into. Uh, good tips. Uh, you may, you certainly know that some ports ships with extra OpenBSD specific documentation stored under user local share doc pkg underscore readmes. Take time to read them. Oh, cool. You can easily pick one with the following command line. And there is a longer command line uh, to pick one at random. No, select F in, uh, okay. Do pager. Yeah, uh, they just list them. Cool. Good to know. And reader comments. Message received from Panino on Hacker News. That's so cool. I love Undeadly, but it's great to also have this website, which interesting content I would normally come across. I'd have no idea that OpenBSD was installable on Gandhi Cloud, for example, or how to play Bugs Prelude in Minor C on OpenBSD using the Mighty Speakers issue number two. Thanks and keep up the great work. Yeah, that's what I can also say. Oh, we also have artworks at the bottom. Very cool. So, yeah. and, and, and a note from the editorial team. Right. Um, apparently, in the comments of issue six posts on Hacker News, uh, they read that some people were a little bit confused about the style of this website and wanted to clarify some points. With this website, we try to gather some links about updates from the OpenBSD project, but also some interesting links involving the usage of OpenBSD. And so Celine, uh, the creator of this project, is working on the OpenBSD team as a volunteer, and she wanted at first to create a place to share her passion and to invite everyone to test and use this operating system. The editorial team is composed of people with various levels of skills, not only in IT, but we all share one thing. We all love OpenBSD and we want to share that love. And you do a good job of this. And I'm fairly sure we will see more uh, issues like these in the future. And we will cover them here as well. All right. Uh, the Beastie Bits this week have a bunch of items in there because a couple of things uh, we found interesting to mention. A trio of open sense releases, for example. We just list the numbers here. You can find the individual links to the uh, release notes in our uh, accompanying show notes here uh, 21.7.8 is out 21.10.3 is out this is the business edition and 22.1.1 is also out so good to know these OpenSense being busy in this uh, area keeping us secure with the firewalling and there's, and there's tons of changes in all of these so. i'm fairly sure they will start integrating if they haven't done so already the FreeBSD 13.1 upcoming uh, version as well so good to know yeah Check out the individual uh, edition that you are going to upgrade for any late changing uh, information or things that might break. So you should be aware of them before you update, right? But uh, as far as I can tell from now, uh, I don't see anything that's too critical, but definitely make a habit of reading the release notes first before making the upgrade. Otherwise, things will go not as expected. Then there's another thing about releases. FreeBSD 12.2 is at end of life. And we have an announcement or letting people know on the mailing lists. The FreeBSD 12.2 is end of life. Uh, on March 31st, actually, on 2022, FreeBSD 12.2 will reach its end of life and will no longer be supported by the FreeBSD security team. Users of FreeBSD 12.2 are strongly encouraged to upgrade to a newer release as soon as possible. There is 13.0 available. Maybe by the time this episode airs, we have FreeBSD 13.1. So no reason to stay on this particular release. Uh, other versions 
have also compelling features and make sure to update there. Otherwise, you are stuck with a release that's no longer supported. And if there is security things coming up, then we are not giving something to draft or two. So make sure to uh, be on the upgrade path. Okay, next up we have a how-to from Dragonfly BSD. It's how to KVM guest. Um, I don't see who this is by. Um, wait, nope. Um, how to KVM guest. Here's how to install Dragonfly BSD as a guest under KVM host. Install KVM 84 or later on a Linux host. Download Dragonfly BSD ISO. Create a guest with CPU 2, memory more than one gigabyte, disk idle, CD-ROM idle, and NIC E1000. Boot the guest using Dragonfly BSD ISO with no KVM option. Otherwise, your screen will be a mess. Install Dragonfly BSD as normal. Set up networks and SSHD. Make sure you can log into the guest. Shut down from Dragonfly BSD guest. Reboot Dragonfly, Dragonfly BSD guest as normal without the no KVM option. Log in to Dragonfly guest via SSH. You might run into some clock sync jitter problems in the guest. If so, the following might help and they link to a mailing list post. There are several CPU timers. You could disable them all through tunables at bootloader.conf. Um, if they're all enabled default and they're all functional, their prior relationship is TSC, HPET, ACPI. If they're all disabled, the only one left is I8254. Uh, cool, that's a nice little guide for how to do something. Yeah, very nice. Good to know that Dragonfly also can do serious uh, KVM uh, guest hosting. And another sad note, uh, so we're recording this uh, day after the International Women's Day and we uh, always are happy about the women in uh, computing and IT, what they've done for us. And this one is special. So we have picked up the TUS, the Unix Histor Historical Society, I think it is, uh, about Lorinda Cherry and Douglas McIlroy, who's also uh, uh, a well-regarded person in the Unix space. He wrote he, to that- He invented list. pipes. Yes, for example, right? You wouldn't do pipes or in this way as we're doing it today if he wouldn't been around. So he writes, Lorinda Cherry, a longtime member of the original Unix lab, died recently. Here is a slightly edited reminiscence that I sent to the president of the National Center for Women and Information Technology in 2018 when they honored her with their Pioneer in Tech Award. So as Lorinda Cherry's longtime colleague at Bell Labs, I was very pleased to hear she has been chosen for the NCWIT Pioneer Award. At the risk of telling you things you already know, I offer some remarks about her career. I will mainly speak of things I saw at first hand when our offices were two doors apart from the early 70s through 1994, when Narinda left Bell Labs in the AT&T slash Lucent split. Most of the work I described broke new ground in computing. Pioneer, quote unquote, is an apt term. Lorinda, like many women, including my own mother and wife, had to fight the system to be allowed to study math and science in college. Uh, she was hired by visual and acoustics research at Bell Labs as a TA, the typical fate of women graduates while their male counterparts were hired as full members of technical staff. It would take another decade for that unequal treatment to be rectified. Even then, one year she received a statement of benefits that explained what her wife uh, would receive upon her death. When Lorinda called HR to confirm that they meant spouse, they said no and demanded that the notice be returned. She declined. It seemed that husbands would not get equal treatment until AT&T lost the current court case. The loss was a foregone conclusion. Still, AT&T preferred to pay lawyers rather than widows and fought it to the bitter end. Lorinda moved into my department in computing science when the Unix operating system was in its infancy. Initially, she, co she collaborated with Ken Knowlton uh, on nascent graphics applications. 
Beflix, a system for producing artistically pixelated films and an early program for rendering ball and stick molecular models. She then joined a self-organized Unix team collaborating on several applications with Bob Morris. And here comes a program that many of you probably have used one way or the other. That's me. Uh, back to the article. First came DC, an unlimited precision desk calculator, which is still a Unix staple 45 years on. Yes, this is still around and it's still doing its job. Building on DC, she would later make BC, which make unlimited precision available in familiar programming language notation and became the interface of choice to DC. So it's definitely worth reading the whole uh, in memorial here about Lorinda. And so at the end, uh, McIlroy notes that Lorinda was always determined, but never pushy. The determination shows in her success in text analysis, which involves uh, much sheer grit. There are no theoretical shortcuts in this subject. She published little, but did a lot. I'm glad to see her honored. Yeah, and it's really, it's really sad news to hear of her passing. Um, and it's a shame we didn't give her more attention while she was still alive. Yeah. I mean, these are programs that are useful still around and 45 years, as we mentioned, this is in Unix and will probably be many more years like this because they work and they are robust and provide good uh, yeah, services yeah, I for mean, us. I, I, I use DC all the time to some lists because it's very convenient to be able to paste a list of numbers into DC and then just add loads of plus signs. Yeah, I use uh, BC and DC to uh, actually introduce uh, here documents to students because you automate programs like BC and DC with these things, like pipe numbers and uh, operations into it. And so that way they can use it in their shell script. And that way they get to use the program a little bit more. And then they learn about how to set precision and stuff like that. Okay, uh, and another thing we have in the... Beastie Bits items from Boot to Root, a precursor. Yeah, so we have uh, an article from Bunny Huang, um, who you might know from the Chumbi or the, oh, what was the laptop they called, Don? Um, he's a hardware hacker. He's the original person that hacked the Xbox, and he's done lots of open hardware projects since. Uh, and they've been working on a project called Precursor, and this is an article on Precursor from Boot to Root. Bunny writes... I've always wanted a computer that was open enough that it can be inspected for security and also simple enough that I could analyze it in practice. Precursor is a step towards that goal. As a test, I made a one hour video to walk through the Precursor tech stack from hardware to root keys. I feel it's a nice demo of evidence-based trust should look like, and then there's a link to the video. Bunny says the video is a bit of a fire hose, so please refer to our wiki for more info or open an issue for further discussion. I've not watched the video, but I think it'd be a great introduction. Um, if I remember correctly, Precursor is a Lattice, no, it's a Xilinx FPGA-based phone with the precept that the entire hardware design and then the CPU design in the FPGA are open source, so you can inspect the system all the way through. And then it is sold in a way that you can program and flash it yourself. And then if you need a secure device, you can glue it shut uh, with glue, which means opening it would be a destructive process. So you can get a very secure device put together. Ooh, okay. It's cool. It's probably a really good video. Bunny is quite a good speaker. Um, uh -huh. All right, then we have something. Oh, and the subtitle in the video is uh, things to look at when you lay awake in bed at night and wonder, is my device actually running the code I told it to? Oh, uh, yes. Better than looking at the, the ceiling when you're lying awake at night in bed. <laughs> Uh, so this would actually bring us to our feedback and questions until 
well, we don't have much. Um, <clears throat> as we mentioned in the previous episode already, we didn't get much feedback. So we filled up everything uh, that we had in previous episodes. So nothing here for this week. Uh, feedback at bsdnado.tv is where you can send show ideas, topics, comments, questions, stories, blog posts you found or written. Uh, and this is a good way of uh, providing us feedback, asking questions, and we try to answer them and help Benedict, you. That's not fair. That's not what this says. It doesn't? It says, it says feedback slash questions. No feedback emails this week, so Tom can regale us with an entertaining of course, I was story. <laughs> introducing that topic. Story time with Tom. Oh, yeah. Hit us. <laughs> uh, I, I don't have a story. I, mean, I, I, I saw this today and I thought it was really funny. Um, I'm enjoying this feud with JT. Yeah. Um, I, I, Alan asked me last time, what, what's this uh, crazy poem that we have here in our internal uh, storage with this uh, Scottish did, accent? Did, 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 like, did he yeah, listen to it? That's special. There's, there's this little <laughs> friendly feud going on. <laughs> oh, it's, it's funny doing things and then not explaining them to alan because you can always reply with listen to the podcast yeah i mean <laughs> it's all there um we, we have a group chat and benedict and i will send things to jt after shows and jt will be like i don't know what you're talking about and then like a week or so later when he's editing he's like oh yeah okay i get it now now, now he finds the audio but none yeah. of us ever explained That's to alan so it's really funny um Anyway, I, I, I don't have a BSD story, but I was thinking um, BSD CAN is going to happen this year. And for the last few years, Alan Jude has run a home labs panel at BSD CAN. He's not doing it this year, which is a shame because I was dragged into the last home labs panel at an hour before it started to just be there. And I was a bit annoyed because I actually had a home lab to talk about. Uh, since then, I've written two blog posts about my home labs and I'm on the third version of my home lab. And because I'm about to move house, I'm going to have a fourth version of the home lab. Oh, is um, that a good place to uh, pluck them here and put it in the show notes so that people can read it? Yeah, I mean, I, I want JT to do it. Uh, I, I'll send him links. Okay, excellent. Um, my, my idea with my home lab is that because uh, I'm not a well-funded organization, I have to use commodity hardware. And I realized that I think that gaming hardware is the most commodity of commodity hardware. And so I built two systems with uh, Ryzen 7 processors because they're basically FreeBSD build machines and they need to do testing and the testing is pushing packets as quickly as possible. And they have um, a matching pair of Intel 5, 20, 10 gigabit dual port SFP plus interfaces. And they're connected back to back, single port. Um, one of the machines, the first one I built, has a Ryzen 3700, and the second one I built has a Ryzen 3800. The difference between these two processors is like nothing. It's like 300 megahertz in the base clock. Oh. And really, the 3800 is like the die-improved version of the 3700. But the 3700 only manages like 4 gigabit a second of receive of TCP, and the 3800 can do 10 gigabit a second. Oh. And I don't really understand why. Yeah. Um, I do have, I, I mean, I've not dug into this, um, and there's like a couple of avenues, right? It could just be the processor clock. And if that's the case, I could overclock the processor because these are overclockable systems because they're gaming spec. Yeah, they are meant and, for these things. And so I could just ramp it up. I mean, I've got the cooling. I live in Scotland. It's cold. I can cool this down. <laughs> um, there's plenty of cool around there. Yeah. Although I was there when it was actually quite pleasant. So yeah, it was quite nice. Um, <laughs> Another another issue though, it might be that there are is PCI bandwidth or there's PCI allocation in the initial default setup, which is different. I'm thinking about this as like, well, the processors don't have onboard graphics, so I have graphics cards in them. Um, 
and they weren't the cards weren't in the same slots and so the graphics card in the 3700 was in the first slot and the network in like the fourth slot and it was the other way around because they're, they're identical motherboards they're identical computers mm. apart from the processor yeah. and the processor should be the same the tdp on them is slightly different so the tdp on the 3700 is 65 watts versus 105 watts for the 3800 but everyone seems to think the 3800 is just like yeah we're doing a bit better now we have a have a have a, a hotter one uh and and i'd like to be able to get them to perform the same because i think i can and huh. i couldn't actually buy a second 3700 and i don't really want to buy a second 3800 because then what am i doing with this slow processor so yeah i i wonder if any of our listeners have suggestions on where to dig um or techniques for gathering evidence for what to do next because i'm a bit limited on time i can spend digging into this and while i can go and read my brendan greg books yeah and figure out what the system is i'd love to know if other people have tried to build home labs using gaming hardware like this um and what their experiences are because it's great to hear about what people are doing i always say it's an avenue into talking at conferences but if you can write to us and tell us about what your home lab setup is and maybe what you do Maybe we can figure out some things I can do on my, my home test bed to make the machines I've bought work for their, their space. Yeah. I mean, you bought them and you're probably not using them for gaming anymore. So you might as well. I mean, I've never them. used them for gaming. <laughs> that's, I don't play that's computer games. Pathetic. <laughs> we, we learned earlier, Benedict, the most recent game I've played is five years old and on the Switch. What purpose used for? <laughs> <laughs> no, these were built to be build machines and network pushers, but I'm happy to spin up like a ton of VMs on them. I'm happy to buy more RAM to do even more. I mean, if I if I had a reason to populate all four channels with 32 gig sticks, I would. Yeah. But I don't have a reason, so they're actually fine with 32 gig of RAM. They don't draw too much power, also, right? Um. Yeah. So I think the the 38 the 3700 system is like 300 watts. Because um, they're running all board. the time when you run this for home setup. No, they're, they're not running all the time. I have them configured with Wake on LAN yeah. and they're on an open WRT switch. Okay. So I wake them up when I need them. The the the, the point One of the points with them is that I moved um, my permanent computing away from a server, which I had in my old job at the university, which was always there and always running and cool and I didn't pay for power. Yeah. And I moved it to an Intel NUC, which draws five watts idle. And then... From there, I went over NFS code directories. And so I spin up the machine and then I just go to the other SSH window and type uh, make there. And it makes really quickly rather than the tiny little nut. <laughs> um, and so they're like on-demand compute in my room uh, and they're a nice little home lab. And I could, I've run loads of virtual machines on them when I need to. And because they're in my bedroom, because I don't have a very big house, uh, I turn them off when I don't need them because they make yeah. the room hot and they're loud. They're just nice like, power efficiency. Yeah. Yeah, that is that. Yeah, and it's getting it's getting more interesting as things develop in the world. Um, but yeah, cool idea. Never thought about using gaming hardware for that. So this is another thing that could be sent to feedback at PSC Nano TV. Oh, and and I will say, if you need to build a ten gigabit router, these are fine. Oh yes, I remember the router project they did uh, at BSD Can a couple of years ago. Everyone bought this one router model and made. These are a bit bigger, Benedict. Um, they'll do um, best case. So, um, well, no, single, single stream's a bad case, but so they'll do like TCP happily, even the 3700 will root uh, 10 gigabit a second and it'll firewall like 8 gigabit a second. Not, not really any sweat. 
um, yeah. for single flow TCP with 1500 byte packets, which is big packets is a good case, but single flow is bad because you don't get to exercise the queues on the NIC. Um, and so if you needed like a um, hardware for like a small office, then building a machine like this is actually viable. And you can stick loads more NICs in it because it's got loads of PCI slots. Yeah. And it's got um, it's got dual NVMe on the motherboard. And so you could, could be easily a nice Apple Time Machine box or uh, yeah. rebuild, right? There's going to be an article soon in the FreeBSD Journal about how to build an Apple Time Machine with FreeBSD tools. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And yeah, they'd be really good for that. Uh, yeah. Not for me because they're in my house and I pay for the power. But... Yeah, but in, in general for like an office setup or where you have a lot of data to be pushed around. Yeah, and if you look lower end, so if you look at like mini ATX, um, mini ATX motherboards like this uh, are very capable. Uh, I mean, this this motherboard has six, eight uh, SATA connectors on it. Huh. It, will, it will do a lot of stuff. Oh yeah. Um, and it really wasn't expensive. And you compare it to a motherboard you'd need for a Threadripper system, which is definitely more computer um, this is really punching above its weight, and I'm really impressed by it. And I'd love to see what other efficiencies people have. I'm less interested to hear about the 10 year old laptop you're using with a fourth generation um, <laughs> i5. Because I have a fourth generation i5 in a shoebox somewhere, and it's hot and not very quick and yeah. sad. It's kind of like you get a new machine, it's oh, so, so much quicker. And uh, if you open the old one again, it's kind of like, uh, I put up with this slow machine, how that long? Oh, you, you know, the, the main thing for me, Benedict, is that uh, NVMe storage is just in, insanely fast. It is, yeah. And having it on the motherboard is just very nice. I mean, and you don't get that with old computers. Spinning disks to SSD was already a speed improvement, but now from SSD to NVMe? Wow, <laughs> that is like another level. All right, uh, we leave you with this and stay tuned for our next episode next week as always and let us know anything that you uh, like on the twitters bsdnow.tv slash no not twitter not, not bsdnow.tv slash twitter we're not doing this the other way around we have a website bsdnow.tv we're on twitter and we're on patreon and these everything uh, you can find our website bye everyone